Last February, um, the legendary basketball player Michael Jordan turned 50. In his heydays in the 80s and 90s, we all wanted to be like Mike. I did. Um, There has been many, many great basketball players in the NBA, but really, Michael Jordan is the greatest. So, it's almost forgivable when I heard that Michael Jordan had a huge ego. He said to a reporter, my ego is so big now that I expect certain things. Uh, Ray Thompson is a reporter for ESPN, and he says that it's natural. I mean, that, that that sort of thing is a natural consequence of being at the top. He reports Jordan is used to being the most important person in every room he enters, and going a step further in the lives of everyone he meets, people cater to every need and every whim. See, he was that good, and so I sympathized with him a little bit until I read this bit of this uh, article in ESPN. Uh, This is what uh, uh, Wright wrote. Jordan is at the center of several overlapping universes at the top of the uh, billion-dollar Jordan brand at Nike, of uh, Bobcats, of his own company with dozens of employees and contractors on the payroll. Um, In uh, in case anyone uh, in the inner circle forgets who he is, Who's in charge? They only have to recall the code name given to them by the private security team assigned to overseas uh, trips. Este is Venom. George is, uh, George is Butler. Ivan is Harmony. Jordan is called Yahweh, a Hebrew word for God. He's called God. He's called Yahweh. Sometimes the greatest tragedy is not actually failure, but sometimes success. Because there is in us, all of us, this desire to be like God, to be the the most important person in every room that we enter in. And when you are that person, when you are the most important person in the lives of everybody that you meet, actually it's really difficult for it not to get into your head. But this happens to the people in the Bible as well. It happens um, it happens to Gideon, unfortunately. So let's take a look at Gideon's life. It was one of the greatest victories, wasn't it? Greatest victory. The victory uh, with 300 people. Gideon defeated the Midianites. Verse 10 tells us uh, the extent. Out of the 135,000 people out there, 120 were routed. Only 15,000 were left. And the 15,000 that were left of the Midianites, they were running. They are fleeing for their life. And here, in this chapter, we see a whole different side of Gideon. Even a day before, even as soon as the day before, he was timid. Remember, he didn't want to go into the battle. He uh, asked for God's assurance again and again. But in Gideon, uh, in this chapter, is Gideon uh, version 2. He's a completely confident Gideon. He decides for himself, and he's out uh, uh, to do his own agenda without consulting God. And we'll see how this is because success has gotten into his head. There are hints of this all over this chapter. One hint that we get is that he pursues his own personal agenda in this war. He's not fighting this war for God anymore. We see now how how tired his troop is after the night of battle. They're worn out and they're hungry, as we're told in verse 5. But they keep going and they keep pursuing this Zalmunna and Ziba. Sorry, yeah, I I now see that this picture is more of a distraction than a... (laughs) 
it's a kid <laughs> success. Um, anyway, so he's pursuing Zilmuna and Ziba, uh, even though they're really, really tired. And we only see the reason why he's out to get these two people only in verse 19. It wasn't because God had commanded it. It wasn't because of some righteous anger. Um, actually, he pursues Zilmuna and Ziba because um, they, were, they killed his brothers, his own family. So when he captures them, he asks them, what kind of a man did you kill in Tabor? They answer, men like you. They were like uh, Gideon because they, they looked like Gideon because they were, they, they were his brothers. Uh, and then, then he humiliates them. He says, why? Well, he, he, he wants his son, Jether, to kill them in verse, uh, verse 20. Jether reminds us what Gideon was like only a day before. He's timid. He's afraid to go. And actually, so he, he hesitates. And once again, Gideon, in this chapter, does not hesitate. He, at that point, takes up the sword and kills them. Success has gotten into his head. He pursues his own agenda. But that, in and of itself, might not convince us that success is the problem. But here we see how entitled he feels as well. He feels entitled because his ego has gotten now, um, uh, uh, he, he has grown. And he, uh, and we see that in the way that he treats his own countrymen, uh, the own, own Israelites. Remember how on the way of pursuing Ziba and Zulmuna, uh, they stop at Sukkoth to ask for bread. And they respond, the people of Sukkoth respond, well, how do we know that you have already won? You don't have, the, the, you don't have Zilmuna, and, and Z, uh, uh, Zilmuna and Ziba's hands, do you? You see, um, they're hedging their bets. They're saying, we're not really sure if you will actually win the victory. We're not really sure if you'll come back as a victor or as, a, uh, as one who's pursued. And so uh, they say, oh, we're not going to help you. And then he, his pride is hurt. Gideon replies in verse six or 7, Just for that, when Yahweh has given, uh, given Ziba and Zilmuna into his hands, uh, I will tear your, your flesh with desert briars and thorns. Desert thorns and briars. And look what he does after he captures Zilmuna and Ziba. They come back to Sukkoth and they accuse them of taunting them. You've taunted me in verse 15 clearly showing that it was his pride that was hurt. And then we're told in verse 16 that he teaches them a lesson. He teaches, he gathers uh, the, the leaders of that, uh, of that city, and he tears their flesh with thorns and briars. He skins them. What lesson is he teaching? Is he teaching God is great? Is that the lesson he's teaching? No, the lesson that he's teaching is don't mess with Gideon. I am that person now. And Gideon literally means hacker, somebody who cuts and kills. He has become that person. And he does something similar to the people of Peniel, the people who also failed to help Gideon on the way. He vowed to tear down the tower, uh, their tower, and he does so in verse 17. And the thing is, people of Sukkoth and Peniel were really behaving only like Gideon did a day before. They were afraid. They were not sure. And God showed this incredible compassion and patience towards Gideon in showing him and assuring him again and again and again, dealing with his doubts and fear. Yet Gideon shows no compassion, no patience to the people of either city. 
This is not a picture of a gracious man who believes that the victory was done by God. This is a man who believes that he had something to do with it. How dare anyone disagree with me, he thinks. If you're still not convinced, there's more. The greatest clue that success has gotten into his head is um, when the Israelites come to them, to him, in verse 22. After this great victory, the Israelites come to Gideon and cry out, Please, now be king over us. Rule over us. Uh, we'll make you into a, di- uh, into a dynasty. You and your son and your grandson rule over us. At first, he seems to do the right thing. He says, no, 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 I can't rule over you. I'm not going to. My son will not. God should rule over you. He says that in verse 23. But then, he go- then, then something goes wrong. In chapter 7, remember how God wanted to make sure that he gets the credit for, for the victory. That, that's the reason why he dwindled the army to 300. He wanted to make sure that everyone, including Gideon, knew that it was he who was going to save them from the Midianites. But when Israelites say, remember in verse 22, he says, King, be king, rule over us because you have saved us. He doesn't correct them. He let that stand. Remember how Deborah sang God's praise after her deliverance of Israelites. Praise of Yahweh. But here, Gideon does not sing a song to Yahweh. He instead, he says, well, I won't rule over you, but could you actually give me some sort of a payment? The earring that you're wearing, the gold earring that you're wearing, could you give it to me? No judge before and after will demand a payment for a service because it was God who saved. And they were God's tools. If you're still not convinced, if you look down to verse 31, he names one of his sons Abimelech, which means my father is king. Abba means father. Yeah, Melech means uh, 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 king. My father is king. He names his son my father is king. He clearly thinks himself, of himself as a ruler at this point. Success has gotten into his head. Sorry, there's one more evidence that this is the case. Remember how he makes the gold that he receives and makes it into an ephod and places it in his hometown in verse 27. An ephod is a priestly garment worn by the Levitical priests, and it was placed in Shiloh where the tabernacle was, was where the Ark of the Covenant uh, resided. But Gideon makes his own ephod and places it in his own hometown. Gideon apparently thinks that the military success that he achieves gives him the right to dictate how people should worship as well. He makes another effort and places it in his, home, in, in his hometown. It was a move clearly uh, to draw attention to him and to his family. He wanted to be remembered. A lot of successful people want, to, want immortality. They want to be remembered again and again throughout the ages. Maybe he wanted to be remembered and we're simply told in verse 27 what God thinks of this. Israel prostituted themselves by worshiping it there, and it became a snare to Gideon and his family. Success is dangerous because pride is deadly. Pride blurs our vision, and we can't see clearly how we got to where we, got, uh, where we are. God has gifted, God has gifted men and women. Therefore, whatever we accomplish should ultimately be to God's credit. 
whether it's an athletic success like Jordan's success or intellectual or business or as a preacher, all owe their accomplishments to God. God's giftings, not just God's giftings of giving people abilities in that sense, but God placing us in this time at, at this place where our gifts could be used um, as, 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 as success. Gideon should have been content with being used as God's tool. Instead, he let his success get into his head, immediately forgetting um, who delivered, who saved. But actually, it was slightly more subtle than that, right? Gideon says, oh, no, 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 I won't be your king. But then he still wants the trappings of kingship. I wonder how many of us are like that. We say, oh, no, of course not. We don't want to be king. We don't want attention. We don't want all the things that um, successful people get. Because clearly we worship God. And yet, we might uh, secretly desire all these trappings of success. One way, I think, of seeing whether success has got into our, our hearts or not is seeing if there is a sense of entitlement in us. Gideon felt entitled to, uh, to the help of people of Sukkoth. I certainly feel entitled at some points. You know, I walk in, I think, oh, people should be, treat, treat me better because I'm a pastor. <laughs> Children often feel entitled, don't they? to all sorts of things. Recent university grads go into the job market and they feel, in, they, 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 they feel entitled to be treated better because they worked so hard and they went to a good university and now they're in this job. Shouldn't they treat me better? Middle-aged people feel entitled because they've worked hard all their life, much of their life, to get to where they are. People who are successful in one area also feel entitled to be treated in a different, uh, in a way, in a different area as well, because they were successful in one area. And also, isn't that how undue anger results in our life as well? Gideon balked at when he wasn't given the help from the people of Succoth. He made sure to teach them a lesson, and often our bloated pride results in our being ungracious holding grudges, sometimes outright anger. People often feel this way about God as well. Because we've been good, because we've worked so hard, God should treat us in a certain way, forgetting the fact that all good things come from God. That we've received all things from God. And sometimes this sort of puffed-up pride takes a religious form. As well, it's subtle. I'm sure many Israelites praised Gideon for making uh, an effort out of the gold that he he received. But it was his way of drawing attention to himself, of glorifying himself. And people sometimes use religion. People sometimes use the church to bring attention to themselves. Pastors often fall prey to this temptation. They want to be the focal point of people's relationship with God. They start demanding that all spiritual decisions should go through them. For most of us, failure might not be the worst thing that happened. If we fail, at least we might realize that all this was an illusion, that one's dignity is not measured by status or money or what outward trappings of success. And he may realize that those things could never fulfill the longings, the deepest longings that we have in us. The worst thing that might happen to some of us, to many of us, actually might be success. 
success might only confirm our desire that we can control our life, that we can make our life the way that we want it to be. So if you're successful, are you successful? And have you fallen prey to, all the, uh, to, 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 to success? And if you strive to be successful, are you sure that you can handle it? Are you sure you can handle it? Gideon was successful because he was really gifted as well. So that's uh, point number two. Um, In fact, he was literally gifted with the Spirit of God. Back in chapter 6, verse 34, the Spirit of the Lord comes upon Gideon. It literally clothes Gideon. He blows the trumpet and fights the battle. He leads the Israelites. He's given that ability to lead Israelites into battle. And because he led the Israelites, he's asked to be the king. But look what happens actually when he dies in verse 33 of our chapter. No sooner had Gideon died than the Israelites again prostituted themselves to Baal. They didn't remember the Lord God who rescued them from Egypt, from the hands of all their enemies on every side. And I think the, it's helpful, I think, at this point to make a distinction between the, the gifts of the Spirit and the fruit of the Spirit, so we don't make a similar mistake um, in our judgment. Gideon, in one sense, has the gift of the Spirit. He's gifted with God. He's given the ability to lead. But he didn't bear the fruit of the Spirit, the character and the value, the qualities of the Spirit. I was talking to Patrick Chan about this, and he made the very helpful analogy. He said that uh, the gifts should be called tools, Tools and, and the fruit should be called metals. Tools and metals. Tools, of course, are a means to an end, not an end in themselves. They by themselves don't mean anything. When gifts like the utterance of knowledge, healing, miracles, prophecy, discernment, administration, even tongue, interpretation, all those gifts are given. It's given for a purpose, to build the people of God, to bear fruit, to, for us to use those gifts so the people of God could bear the fruit of the Spirit. People, um, uh, gifts are to be used to build us to be more like Christ. And the fruit of the Spirit is then the quality, the character of Christ that Spirit bears in us. Paul names them in Galatians chapter 5. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, um, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. They are the results of the Holy Spirit working in us, of us, the result of living lives attached to Jesus Christ, uh, living lives that are continually uh, looking um, to Christ. But in our culture, we treat tools like metals. We judge people by their ability rather than their character, values. It's convenient in many ways, to do it this way, because it's easier to see the gifts than the fruit. And it's a lot easier to hide our fruitlessness than our giftlessness. You know, when you put people in the spotlight, um, their gifts will shine out. But it's very easy to hide their fruitlessness. And not only that, um, gifts are easier to, uh, uh, to, to cultivate because a lot of times it's a solo endeavor. It's something that you can work on. 
many ways. You can fake these gifts, but it's really difficult to fake the, fake, um, the, the, the fruit of the Spirit, patience, kindness, self-control, because it's got to be lived and born in living in community with each other. We also treat these abilities or gifts um, as metal since the world values them. Often they're attached, actually, to a monetary value. One could become very rich being a gifted speaker. But often it doesn't pay much to be joyful, to be patient. Even in the church, pastors who speak well, to teach well, to have these outward signs of these gifts are valued, perhaps even uh, over against the pastors who have the fruit of the Spirit in their lives. But remember, God will not judge us by our gifts, by our abilities, but by our fruit. Even if we call Lord, even if we say to Jesus, Lord, Lord, but remember how to be not prophesy in your name, Jesus might turn to us and say, call us evildoer and dismiss us. But he does say that the world will know by the fruit that we bear that the trees that do not bear fruit will be cut down. And we must be different as a church. We must create an alternative option for the world where gifts are not sought after for their self-glorification, but for upbuilding of the church. They're used to build up others to... um, or the fruit of the Spirit is practiced and valued in our minds and in our conversations. And we must be conscious of the fact that being gifted, being gifted with the Spirit is not the same thing as being fruitful. One of the greatest dangers of Christians, uh, for Christians is to rest on our gifts while neglecting cultivation of, our, uh, of, the, of the fruit We may flatter ourselves because we may be helping, actually, many people. Or because we're able to lead many people in our ministries. Or because we have a deep biblical knowledge. And therefore, we assume that we're walking right with God. But underneath, we may be harboring selfishness, pride, rage, anxiety. That's not being dealt with by prayer, by God's grace, looking continually to Christ. Gideon was an example of that. As we look um, back at um, Michael Jordan, Michael Jordan was clearly a gifted individual, not the spiritual kind, but definitely a gifted individual. Um, Once again, his code name was Yahweh. And this is inappropriate on so many different levels that I can think of. But one of the biggest reasons why I think this is so inappropriate is because when Yahweh God reveals himself in Jesus Christ, we find that Yahweh is nothing like Michael Jordan. Jordan glorified himself. He felt entitled he wanted to, um, he wants things that doesn't belong to him. But Jesus is the opposite. Jesus has everything, but he wants to give it away for our benefit. This is how Paul puts um, the old hymn, um, uh, puts it in the old hymn that's quoted in Philippians chapter 2, um, starting verse 5. 
It says, in your relationship with each other, have the same attitude of mind as Christ Jesus had, who, being in the very nature of God, did not consider himself equality with God, some, something to be grasped, something to be used in his, uh, for his own, own advantage. Rather, he made himself nothing by taking the very nature of a servant, by being made in human likeness. And being found in appearance as human being, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to death, even death on the cross. That's the difference, isn't it? Gideon and Jordan versus God, Yahweh God and Jesus Christ. Gideon and Jordan, who are not equal with God, wanted some equality, something to be grasped. While not being equal with God, consider themselves equality with God. We get puffed up. We do that too. We get puffed up in our abilities and our achievements. We desire to live our lives our way, and we sometimes want other people to live their lives our way as well. We grasp for things that do not belong to us. On the other hand, Jesus, who was God, who was equal with God, did not consider uh, his equality something to be grasped, to hold on to, to, to take advantage of. But he gave all that up and became a human being. Not only a human being, took a form of a servant. Not only took a form of a servant, he went to the cross to die for us. He is God, but he did that for us. And remember, after the battle, the Israelites come to Gideon. And they say, rule over us because you saved us. What Gideon should have said is, yes, I'm not supposed to rule over you. God is supposed to rule over you. And he should have spent the rest of his life pointing to Yahweh God. And the Israelites should have given themselves over, not to Gideon, but to Yahweh God. And if the logic is, who has saved us should rule over us, we have to remember our salvation the thing that we needed saving from every single one of us. Christ saved us. Christ saved us. And we owe our lives to him. He deserves all our worship. And if you know him, if you come to know him, you will want to worship him and you will want to be like him. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we thank you so much for all our gifts. Lord, we thank you for placing some of us in very high positions in our companies, in government, and um, in this society. You've given us status and success um, that we might not have even imagined when we, uh, when we were younger. We thank you for those gifts. And we pray for those of us who are very successful. Lord, we pray that um, they will live their lives for you. We pray also for all of us, for many of us who are striving to be successful. Lord, we pray that you will mind, uh, remind us of the dangers of success. That as we strive these things, we're not striving for the wrong things. Lord, we pray that in all our situations, you will constantly remind us of who you are. Lord, we pray that we'll look to you. That we'll look to Jesus Christ and what he has done for us and what he was like. 
And we pray that as we attach ourselves to Christ, as we look to Christ, that the Spirit will bear fruit in us, that the world will know that there are um, a different way of living, a life that's fuller and more joyful and more abundant. And we pray that whether we are successful or not, the world will be able to see that in us. Help us to be like you. Remind us of what you were like. Help us to worship you and strive to be like you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.